uh, I, I mentioned last week that I wasn't going to be able to get through the first chapter, so I was going to need a couple weeks to do that. So that's what we're going to, that's the aim for this morning is to get part two of chapter one within the, uh, the Serpent and the Serpent Slayer by Andrew Nassily. Uh So we are the deceitful snake in Genesis 3. Now, as a quick recap, we went through six of the 12 uh, points that uh, the author wanted to draw out here. Um, and let's just briefly go over those again. First is, the snake is, yeah, he's deceitful. He is, as the scripture says, the craftiest of those animals, of the beasts. And, and we learned that his first strategy was not to devour, but to deceive. Number two, the snake is a beast that God created. Well, the big takeaway there is, just like every other creature, the snake is not independent of God. Um, Phil brought up that, that saying, you know, the, the devil is God's devil. Number three, the snake deceives by questioning God. That's his first thing that he does. He puts a question forward to Eve that was meant to question God's righteousness, his, his graciousness, his goodness, and what he ended up doing and what he always ends up doing when he's successful in that is he deceived Eve into doing the very same thing, questioning God, not in a good way. Number four, the snake deceives by contradicting God. So that was his next plan, uh, Nestle, uh, our author, uh, draws out. He says that we know he is a liar. He's a liar from the very beginning, Scripture says. Uh, he lies and he blasphemes God, telling more or less Eve that God has selfish motives here. He doesn't want you to be happy. This is the devil that we're talking about after all. And, and he sounds like the devil with the lies. Number five, the snake deceives by tempting with worldliness. We talked about the, um, the correlation here with 1 John chapter 2. And also when in Christ's own temptation, how there's the, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes that are brought in and the pride of life. And then number six, the last point that we covered last week was the snake deceives Eve to rebel against God, and Adam follows Eve. Adam's following Eve here. What did God do but commission his image bearers to, to rule over the beasts of the field? He gave them that dominion mandate. But instead of obeying God, they disobeyed him, and they followed the snake instead. And as a result, man fell. So now we come to number seven. Number seven is um, focusing on the deceitfulness of the snake. As a result of the snake's deceit, Adam's and Eve's sins separate them from God. That's what sin does. It separates from God. 
So let's see what happened here next. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be there primarily this morning. In verses 7 through 13. Let me read that. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now I want to stop there for a moment. Um, G.K. Beale. I cited him a couple of times last week. This this past this part of the verse in verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool today. By far, that is the most prevalent way that that verse is translated. Uh, there is one man that um, Beale, one scholar, he noted that believes it should be translated a, a bit differently, quite quite a bit differently, and it's saying that he speaks more of God coming in a storm with a an intent to judge now again you know if he's right it does certainly flow with the text of what happens um but most translations do not interpret it that way or, or translate it that way but certainly the lord god knew what happened what we read next was not a surprise to god so what does he say next so the lord god was walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The woman, or the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam and Eve were naked. They were naked. And they were not ashamed before all this. That nakedness and the lack of shame, it symbolized their innocence that they, they once had. We see this in Genesis 2.25. But, of course, after they sinned, after they fell, they tried to clothe themselves because they were no longer innocent. They tried to hide themselves from God because they were ashamed to be in his presence. Rightly so. Being the holy of holies. Well, what, what, do we, what happens next? God, he gives Adam and Eve the opportunity. He's giving them the opportunity to confess their sins. He's asking questions. Where are you? What, what have you done? He's giving them opportunity to confess their sins and take responsibility for them. If they had, whatever that would have meant, who knows? But they didn't. They didn't. Uh, they justified themselves, you know, making excuses. Adam blame, blames Eve, and then what's Eve do? She blames the snake. You know, they didn't take a, an op advantage of the opportunity to confess their sins. 
All right. Number eight. As a result of the snake's deceit, God curses the snake and he promises a snake crusher. We see this in Genesis chapter 30, verses 14 and 15. So, of, so many of us are familiar with that verse, verse 15, but let's read both 14 and 15. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our author theorizes here that, that God may, he might have made originally this, this, this snake with legs and wings, you know, that might be something that we would more recognize as a dragon. I don't Perhaps he did. Something may, may have been like that because the curse is now cursing him to eat dust for its existence. But because of his deceit, that's what God did. He humiliated the snake, making it eat dust. Um, and so as a result now, when... Uh, we describe a snake as a reptile that is long and has no limbs, doesn't have any eyelids, moves over the ground on its belly, flickering at, at a very creepy tongue of his. That snake is eating dust. That's something to remember. When we see that, that's because of the curse that God put. Upon that beast. Well, God cursed not only the snake, but also we know that he cursed the snake's offspring. Uh, he cursed them with enmity, it says in verse 15. Enmity. Enmity between him and the woman. And between their offspring. Uh, we see and we read throughout scripture. And this, that storyline which traces that ongoing battle between the snake's offspring and the woman's offspring. It's that common theme running throughout. We first see that seed of the serpent in Cain. And he ends up killing his brother Abel. You can't get much more enmity than that. We see that at first, you know, the serpent, Jesus explains in John chapter 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning. We see that with his child Cain, if you will. Humans, we are either children of God or, either chil or children of the devil. Slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness, slaves of Christ. You know, that multiple times we see that talked about in scripture in the gospels in in first john in chapter three talks about that but instead of that line of the woman's offspring continuing through abel the seed of the woman continued through seth when 
She, he was born, Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Eve sees what's happening to some extent. Now that line, we know, continued through Noah, and it went Abraham to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through Judah, eventually through David, all the way to Christ and his followers, you and, and me. You and me. Now, the woman's offspring can refer also, when you're reading that, to a group of people or to a particular person. A group of people, of course, like the people of God collectively, the offspring of the woman, or in particular through Christ himself, as Paul refers in Galatians chapter 3. So we see that enmity carried throughout Scripture between the woman's offspring and the snake's offspring, the devil's offspring. And of course, although the serpent will indeed bruise Christ's heel, and he did, dying on that tree, we see Christ as the ultimate seed of the woman being played out here. It crushes the serpent, crushes the serpent. D.A. Carson talks about this. He says, by going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy the serpent, this devil who holds people captive under sin, shame, and guilt. He will crush the serpent's head by taking their guilt and shame on himself. Totally unexpected way for Christ to gain victory. Definitely not how uh, any of us would have probably written the story from the beginning. Christ did that. That's what he did. All right, number nine, as we continue to walk through this Genesis 3 result. As a result of the snake's deceit, God punishes Eve and Adam. He punishes our first parents. In verses 16 through 19 in chapter 3, it says... To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. They shall surely die. Dying, and they will be dying, literally. God punished them both with pain, with pain. That's what he punished them with. You see, something we humans understand is pain. We can comprehend pain. Adam and Eve were no different. If words, if, if God's commands, no matter how many times he says it, if they alone will not work, they won't be heard, then pain will often be what, what makes one person hear. 
God forbid that you would even be so hardened that you won't even react to light affliction that brings on harder affliction that may even bring death perhaps even who knows we respond to pain we understand it God punished the woman with pain and childbearing pain in how she and her husband struggle to lead him to lead in a marriage relationship for her to to serve and to love each other to serve each other there's pain in that struggle there instead of gladly following her husband that curse that is brought upon them the woman now desires to dominate him usurping his leadership or in a way possessively clinging to him wanting him to be more for her than he can be being frustrated by that and then punishing there's pain in that and for the man instead of responsibly exercising headship loving his wife he selfishly man will selfishly selfishly fail to to guide and lead and protect her maybe even treating her with harshness domineering over her in some manner or lazily abdicating his authority it can be a vicious cycle at times one at each other's throats we know this but there's hope for those in Christ not to be that way by cursing the ground God punished the man with pain and cultivating the ground that's what God said that was his, those are the words that we read Adam he sinfully ate that forbidden fruit and as a consequence it's going to be more difficult to grow food you see the relation there where they failed is where they, the pain resides what they should have been and should have been doing is where pain is found You know, God created the earth to be abundantly productive. It was a garden. And, and from that garden, it was to reach out to the nations. This river that was to flow out and the blessings and uh, taking over the earth and filling it should have been, it was a, a fruitful world that God created. But now he cursed it. God, furthermore, he punished mankind with mortality. We see that as well. And as a result, we, man experiences physical death. And we, we go to the very ground from which we came. That same ground, that dust that the snake is now eating. There's that pain of spiritual death and the separation of God. Because of that sin. We are now born in sin. Born as slaves to sin. All as a result of the snake's deceit. Number 10. As a result of the snake's deceit, God clothes Adam and Eve with garments of skin. 
All right, we'll pick that up in verses 9 through 11. Let's read that in verse, in chapter 3. Oh, we already read that about them hiding, um, hearing God in the garden walking, and then they hiding from him. And then, of course, they, God clothes them. And where did that skin come from, that garment of skin? Well, he killed an animal to cover them, covering them um, their shame and the guilt that they now had because of their fallen innocence, the state that they are. God was merciful there in that point. You know, of course, you know, we've studied at times what this meant, God um, killing that animal so that they could be clothed. What, what's that mean? What's that pointing to? Um, one thing it points to is the animal sacrifice under the Mosaic law. It points to that, that there is uh, a, a necessariness of the shedding of blood and dealing with sin. Ultimately, we see that in the sacrifice of Christ himself and the shedding of his blood. You know, God didn't have to do this. Of course, he didn't have to do it. But it was, again, it was a mercy that he, he granted to them. And, it, and it, pointed, it pointed to them their great need. They had a need for adequate clothing to cover their shame. And God provided that in the shedding of blood. That's something that runs throughout Scripture, all the way, all the way through Scripture. We find so much of that in Genesis 3, pointing forward. Next, in the 11th thing that our author calls out, it says, as a result of the snake's deceit, God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. So now they're kicked out. Aaron kind of touched on this a little bit uh, last uh, week or so. Um, Let's read that, in, starting in verse 22 in Genesis 3. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Is that, you know, remember Aaron talking about that? Well, our, the author of the book that we're going through, Nasali, he explains that it, this part of the story here, there are two major themes in Scripture that it, it's, it's emphasizing here. First, that the theme of Exile and exodus. Exile and exodus. You know, God banishes sinful people. He banishes sinful people from his special presence, if they're his people. And he banishes evil and sinful people from the land um, for their sins as well, like he eventually did with Canaan. But with his people, he banishes them from his special presence, and then he redeems them from exile, 
We see that theme of Exodus, the, the redemption of taking them back from exile. So there are some highlights that this theme that we see. And let's go through some of them as we walk through the Old Testament here. Well, God exiles Cain. He exiles him to the land of Nod. We read that in the next chapter in Genesis, in Genesis 4. He's exiled. There are more exiles before Noah, but um, now we see um, a, an exodus here. God delivering Noah from the flood. In Genesis 6 through 9. God being merciful. Again, God exiling rebellious people in the Tower of Babylon, dispersing them for their arrogance that they were displaying. We see a theme of Exodus here, this, this bringing people out with Abraham, bringing Abraham, Abram at the time, out of Ur. And, of course, later on, the people out of Egypt. We see people, Israel being exiled to the northern, king, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, being exiled to, to Assyria. Of course, the southern kingdom, Judah, being exiled to Babylon. And then delivering them, an exodus, if you will, delivering them from exile in these lands, from Assyria and Babylon, back to the land. And then, of course, we see that climactic exile in Christ as he atoned for our sin and he bore our sin. As he suffered, the Father forsaking him. Because of the sin. And then the very climactic exodus with his resurrection. We see that there as well. This theme starting off in Genesis 3. Now God's people have entered into rest in Christ. We see that, that, that exodus that we have. In Hebrews um, chapter 3 and 4 it talks about this. It's what we have in Christ. While we live as sojourners. As some... Bibles read and commentaries as holy pilgrims in this world, awaiting that ultimate exodus someday when Christ comes back and, and will forever enjoy the, the full presence of God forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. And then also that ultimate exile when God forever banishes his enemies from his presence and throws them into the lake of fire. There are ultimate climactic and history-ending themes here as well that we get to look forward to. So that's one thing he talks about, this, this theme of exile and exodus. And then the second one is temple. The theme of the temple runs very strong throughout scripture as well. Uh, it begins, of course, with the Garden of Eden being the temple of God. God is dwelling there amongst them in the garden. God creates the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2. The Garden of Eden becomes his dwelling place. Uh, we know God's dwelling place is associated with heaven. And then he comes down to earth. He comes down to earth. So the Garden of Eden is the first temple, that, that temple garden. It's a divine sanctuary. 
that they've been banished from. It was the place where humans met with God. There are, of course, many parallels in Scripture about, you know, between the Garden of Eden and we with the tabernacle and the temple. The most holy place, you know, or the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple, it kept the Ark of the Covenant. That's where it was housed, surrounded by two elaborate gold cherubim. And reading some writings, again, by Beale, understanding this, this temple theme, the very center of the, the cosmic center of the universe, where the heavens met the earth, was between those two cherubim on that ark. That's where God's presence on earth, that's where it was, it's, that's where it, it dwelled for a time. It became the cosmic center of the universe. Well, this room that was constructed in the tabernacle, it was, again, it was God's throne room. And it was only the, the, the high priest was allowed to enter it once a year to, to make atonement for, his, for the people. That's what he did. And when they served in the holy place, that inner veil kept them from seeing into the most holy place. And we know we went through Exodus time and again learning about the skill that God put into mankind to make this place. And if you, if we took the time here to just, and we probably will cover it in the later series, um, just the elaborate design in, the temp, in that tabernacle itself and in the later temple, the similarities between that and the Garden of Eden. Now, God instructed them to weave that, that, that veil with, with cherubim worked into that inner veil, you know, depicting the cherubim that now blocked the way into the Garden of Eden. Nasally, the author here, he explains that the most holy place, again, parallels the Garden of Eden. So after God expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the Tree of Life. And in that similar way, the cherubim were woven into that veil, that inner veil, symbolizing that sinful humans could not enter this temple either. Only one consecrated man could do this one time a year. Of course, the temple theme climaxes in Christ himself. Jesus, that the God-man, tabernacles among human beings, among us. That's the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us, tabernacling among us, as it says in John chapter 1. No, Christ's body is the temple. And when he died on the cross, that we know, Scripture tells us that that veil in the temple was torn asunder, torn in two from top to bottom. Matthew 27, from top to bottom. I can't recall how many inches thick that was. 
We see that being done because of what Christ has accomplished. Now, his death, Christ's death, made us possible now to go directly into God's presence. He is our high priest, dying once for sin. The temple rituals, those hindrances for us Gentiles, you know, that Mosaic covenant, it's, it's now, those ceremonial laws are now obsolete. Jesus is our temple. He is our priest, our sacrifice. A blood more righteous than Abel's. And so now the church, we are collectively God's people inasmuch as we are the body of Christ. You know, collectively and the individual Christian. Your body, my body, temple of God. The ultimate temple in the new Jerusalem where Christ is. In Revelation 21, it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb, Christ, again, being that ultimate temple. No, no more physical temple, Christ himself. So we see this theme of exile and exodus running throughout Scripture. We see the temple theme as well running throughout Scripture. And it has its beginnings here in Genesis 3. It's neat to see this. It's neat. All right, last one, number 12. The snake is Satan. Some verses here that I'll go through, not from our passage in Genesis 3. Romans 16 starting the latter part of verse 19 and and going into verse 20, Paul writes, I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This will be accomplished under our feet through Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writes, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Again, the deceitfulness of the snake, still a problem for us today, getting in the way of our pure devotion. That pure devotion is known as, as... is what we're called to have as a, a true religion. Our hearts are to be purely devoted. When aren't we are no longer purely devoted to Christ. That's when worldliness is coming in. That's what we're suffering then. The, the worldliness, the infection of it. There's not that pure devotion. Revelation Chapter 12, verses 3, 9, 10, and 12. Let's just go through those. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. 
He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth. And see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then Revelation 20, verse 2. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We see that theme running once again of exile and exodus. That enmity theme between the snakes, the serpent's offspring, and the woman's. And Astley explains that many commentators on, on Genesis 3, they don't identify that snake as Satan, which is why you know we, the 12th point here is the snake is Satan. Believe it or not, there are many who don't believe it was Satan. They they liken it to something as a personification of chaos, if you will. There are even some who identify the snake as Satan, but they're reluctant to go and interpret Genesis 3 from that perspective. And, of course, that will mess up this theme running throughout Scripture of that this offspring of the serpent and offspring of the woman. I don't know what they do with that if they are saying that the snake was not the devil. The, the devil, how that happened, who knows exactly. Was it the devil disguising himself in the form of a snake? Was it the devil possessing a snake? I'm not sure, but it was the devil. It was Satan. Regardless of that way that he did that, the Bible presents the story of that talking snake as real history. This truly happened. It is not a myth. It's not a legend or a fable. This truly happened. Adam and Eve, they really existed as our first parents in history. We are to take Genesis 3 literally is the point. So much of scripture, again, abounds from it. All right, so at the story's very beginning here, the Bible teaches that the snake is deceitful. And as the story progresses, as we go along, the serpent's strategy, again, is going to alternate between deceiving as a snake and devouring as a dragon. Next week, oh, we're going to go into, no, next week I preach. The week after that. We're going into chapter 2, where we're going to do part 1 of Snakes and Dragons and the Bible's bookends. So we'll continue with this in a couple of weeks.